All right. So like I said, um, I'm going to be filling in for Toby uh, for the next three weeks, and over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be diverting our attention away from Genesis. I'm not going to touch Genesis. Joe, Toby's still going to be doing Genesis. Uh, but we're going to be doing a study in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Um, and I was hoping I was not going to have to use these, but I think I'm going to have to do that. So. So today, the plan is we're just going to do an overall introduction of the book of Daniel, so we're not going to be spending a lot of time actually in Daniel, uh, but we'll be more talking about the book of Daniel. Um, uh, and I think it's good that, that we study the Old Testament books. You know, we've, we've been going through Genesis, Toby's been going through Genesis with us. Um, we can look at a book like Daniel, because sometimes as believers, I think the Old Testament books tend to get, it, get neglected um, by us. Um, sometimes we think that they may not give us as much practical application or that they may not be as relevant for today. And in some instances, we may be able to make that case. There may be some books where we think, I'm not sure exactly how that fits today. But there is still a lot that we can glean from books of the Old Testament. Some people see the differences between the Old and New Testaments almost as a difference between two gods. I mean, not many believers think that, and not, not many believers would say that, but I think sometimes even our own minds, we, we, we almost say that. Or maybe not two gods, but two different versions of God. There's the Old Testament God who's wrathful, and there's the New Testament God who's loving. But as students of the Bible, we should all understand that that's not the case. God has not changed, nor will he change. The same God that dealt with Adam and Noah and Abraham in Genesis is the same God that we worship and follow today. The same God that dealt harshly with those that sinned against him in the Old Testament is the same God that abhors sin in the world today, and not just in the world, but especially he abhors sin in the church. God is a holy God, and as his children, he requires us to be holy as well. 1 Peter 1, we just studied 1 Peter not too long ago, is a good example of that. As Peter is giving instructions to believers in the church, he quotes from the, old, from the writings of the Old Testament where he says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. God has not changed. He requires holiness from those who belong to him today, just like he did back in the Old Testament. And with that in mind, when we come to the books of the Old Testament, we need to realize that the picture of God that we see there is the picture that we should also have of him in our minds today. Because the character of God does not change. So why study the book of Daniel specifically? Well, the book of Daniel is one that is... It's one of the most relevant and applicable books that we have in the Bible, especially for the church. And I don't just mean Old Testament books, I mean in all of the Bible. The book of Daniel has been called by some the, the greatest book of the Old Testament. It's been called the revelation of the Old Testament. It's been said, and I truly believe, that if you don't have an accurate understanding of the book of Daniel, you can't have an accurate understanding of the book of Revelation, and in many instances, the entire rest of Scripture. 
revealed prophecy, things revealed by God to Daniel that would take place in a time that is yet future to Daniel, make up a good portion of this book. And one thing that we need to understand about this prophecy is that it's something that directly affects us today. Because the main focus of the prophecy that we find here still has its greatest fulfillment in a time that is yet future even to us. Now when we talk about prophecy, some might ask, how, how does prophecy directly affect us today? You might say, well, what do you mean by that? Why, why, would I, why would I think that prophecy would directly affect me today? How does having a knowledge of things that have not yet occurred fit with our being good pan-millennialists? Have you heard that term, pan-millennialist? It's not a real theological term, so don't write this down. But a good pan-millennialist um, are those that hold to a biblical philosophy that they don't care about details of the future, they just know that it's all going to pan out in the end. I don't care what God says about the future, I just know that I'll just leave that for the future. And that's not a good philosophy to have. I hope that none of us are pan-millennialists here, although there are many believers today that do think this way. They may not call themselves that or have a term for it, but that's, that's their behavior. That's the way they operate. They don't know when they don't care to know about future events. Knowing God's prophecy is just as relevant and important as knowing history. In fact, what is prophecy? True prophecy, as revealed by God to men, is history. It's just not in the past. It's in the future. When God reveals something and he says that something is going to happen, that's as good as done, just like something that happened in the past. It carries the same weight as if he had told us what had already happened. So how does prophecy affect us today? Well, having an accurate understanding of the prophecies of Daniel, as well as all the prophecies of Scripture, gives us further insight and understanding into the workings and the plans of God. And we are to live in light of that. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in that chapter, Paul talks to the Corinthians about the rapture of the church. We're probably all familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, the rapture of the church. He talks about the time in the believers um, who are on the earth will be caught up together with Christ in the clouds. And he talks about the resurrection of the dead into glorified bodies. He talks about, as believers, what is in store for us in the future. All things that for a believer are a part of what we have to look forward to someday. And he spends that that, that chapter talking about these future events. And then he sums up the chapter in this way in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, what's he saying here? In a nutshell, because of the way that you are going to be spending eternity, because of the plans that God has for you in the future, because of all the things that God has in store for you, you need to live your lives this way. Be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in The work of the Lord, he says. Knowing what's coming down the road ought to shape the way that we live our lives today. 
And that's true with the things that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and it's true with the things that we're going to see as we look into the book of Daniel as well. But Daniel's not just a book about prophecy. That may be the first thing that, we, that comes to mind when we think about Daniel, is the prophecies that, are, that we see there. But it's also a book about the man Daniel himself. The book actually can be divided into two halves. The first half is the first six chapters, and that deals with Daniel and, and those around him. And there's narrative there. There's, there's the lion's den. There's the fiery furnace. There's the, the writing on the wall or in those first six chapters. And from, from these accounts, we get to look into the examples of godly men. Actually, the examples that we see in these chapters are twofold. We not only see godly men in these chapters, we see ungodly men in them as well. We have examples of men that should be emulated and, and show us the way that we should behave in certain situations, and then we also see men who don't do it right at all and that we should avoid. So we can learn from both of those examples. And then in the last half of Daniel, verse, in chapter 7 through 12, we have the prophecies that God reveals to Daniel. There are also prophecies in the first six chapters, but, but the main focus there really seems to be on the accounts of the individuals involved, and we can see more about their character. So that's what we have in store for us in the book of Daniel. But what I want to do now is spend some time going over some of the background of the book. I don't know how much we know about Daniel and about the history of it, but, but there is history here that I think we need to be aware of that's always good to know as we as we start to study a book. There were things that were going on with Israel and in the world, and, and these are things I think that are important for us to note as we begin this study. And then there are also some controversies associated with Daniel that, that I think we should touch on as well. So for this morning, we're going to spend our time looking into some of these background issues, and I hope this will allow us to look at Daniel more clearly as we go through the book in the future. So the first thing I want to look with you at is um, look at with you is the placement of the book. Where does Daniel fall in our Bibles? Well, the book of Daniel is placed in our Bibles as one of the five major books of prophecy. We divide up the books of prophecy in our Bibles into the major and minor prophets. All right, the designation doesn't have anything to do with importance or magnitude. It's it's simply division based on length in most cases. You have larger books and you have some smaller prophetic books. Israel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are the four major prophets, um, but you also have Jeremiah writing Lamentations, so he has two entries on the list, and that brings the total to the five major prophetic books in Scripture. The other prophets, the minor prophets, are shorter books, um, which is what designates them as minor, and I'm not going to rattle them off the top of my head because I don't know them off the top of my head, so we'll avoid that. But Daniel is the last of these major books, uh, because it was probably written last, somewhere around 535 B.C. It's interesting to note that in the, division, in the Jewish division of the Old Testament, Daniel wasn't counted among the prophets, but he was counted among what they called the writings. And the Jewish, the Jewish Bible had five books of the law. They had the prophets, and, which included the other major and minor prophets. And then they had the writings, which included books like Psalms, Proverbs, um, they included Lamentations there, and Daniel was one of the books placed into this category as well. 
And it's presumed that the reason for this wasn't because the Jews regarded it as inferior, but because the book never refers to Daniel as a prophet, but as a wise man or a seer. It is definitely different in its makeup than the other major prophets, as it doesn't actually contain judgments against the nation of Israel or Judah. But in fact, it reveals the cause for hope for the nation instead. At the time it was written, the need for pronouncing judgment like the other major prophets were doing was was passed, and we'll take a look at that here shortly. But we can rest assured that Daniel was a prophet and that this book is rightly placed amongst the prophetic writings. The history surrounding the book, where does Daniel fit in history? For those of you that are familiar with the history of Israel, you know that after the reign of Solomon, the nation was split into two. Right? There were ten tribes in the north that made up Israel, and the capital of Israel was Samaria. Then there were two tribes in the south that made up Judah, and the capital there was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom had no good kings. There was not one man that led Israel after Solomon that was pleasing to the Lord. The nation sinned continuously, and as a result of that, the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. 2 Kings 18 tells us this. In 2 Kings 18, starting verse 11, it says, Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they would neither listen nor do it. And that was it. The northern kingdom was taken into exile and was never restored after that point. The people never returned from that exile. They were intermarried with the Assyrians, as was the Assyrians' custom, right? You... You capture people, you intermarry with them, and that kind of wipes out the the people. And they ceased to be an autonomous group. But God, being faithful, allowed remnants of the northern tribes to take refuge in the south, and therefore the ten tribes were not irrevocably lost. But basically, for all intents and purposes, the southern kingdom became the entire nation of Israel once again, just those two tribes in that, that area there. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah fared better than their northern brethren by a little over a hundred years. Judah did have, did have some kings who did right in the sight of the Lord, but in the end, they too would be taken into captivity. And right about the time that Israel was being captured by the Assyrians, the prophet Isaiah was prophesying in Judah. About 100 years before they would find themselves in captivity, Isaiah saw the prosperity that Judah was enjoying, but he knew that it would not last, as was the normal pattern of Israel's history. If you look at Israel's history in the Old Testament, especially if you look at the book of Judges, it's, through, it's all throughout the Old Testament, but especially the book of Judges, you see this. You see a pattern that the nation of Israel has always gone through. Right, Israel, they start off with obeying God and God blesses them, right? Things are going well with them. But then after they've been blessed for so long, they start to turn away from God. God brings judgment upon them. 
Israel gets to a point where it's so bad as God's bringing this judgment upon them that they repent and they cry out, and then God rescues them right, from their, from their punishment. And once God rescues them, Israel begins to, ble- or begins to worship him again and obey him again, and God blesses them again, and they get back to the, the top of the ark there until the next time they turn away, and then the pattern starts all over again. And if you read through Judges, you see that pattern throughout all the Judges that, that God brings to uh, um, work with the nation. And the cycle goes on and on. Well, that, this had always been the pattern, and the time that, Israel, or that Isaiah was writing was no different. They were in the part of the cycle where they had been blessed, and they were beginning their downward descent into sin. They were starting to forget about God, right? And you know, this isn't even unique to Israel, is it? I mean, I think, I think we even get into patterns where when things are going right with us, there's a tendency to forget that we rely on God for things. And then when something bad happens in our lives, that's when we go back and we say, oh, Lord, we need, we need, I need you. I need you. And I think that's, that's what, I think that happens with us, and that happens, that's definitely what happened with uh, the nation of Israel. But the, the prophecies of Isaiah are filled with warnings for them not to forsake the Lord, and also the prophecy of them being taken into captivity in Babylon. And this was 100 years before it actually happened. So then we turn to, to Jeremiah, who happened to come about 60 years after Isaiah, right? So Isaiah was about 100 years before the captivity. Then you have Jeremiah, who's about 60 years later. Jeremiah prophesied during the last five kings of Judah and was there to see the downfall. He was actually there to see the end and all that Isaiah warned about actually coming to pass. Judah had not repented. They had not heeded the warnings of Isaiah, and now the judgment of God was coming upon the nation once again. And if you think about the situation here, Judah had enjoyed the blessings of God. And there were many reasons why they should have known better than to to mess it all up. They had the warnings of history. They could see the pattern of Israel's past just like we could, right? I mean, they knew how Israel's past had always been. But, you know, when when you're the one in that pattern, you're the one that starts to disobey God, you don't make that rational thought back to well, I've seen this pattern before, so maybe I shouldn't do the same thing. So they had that, that pattern of history, but they didn't, they didn't heed that. They didn't make the right decision there. Another thing was that they had the most recent example of what just had happened to the northern nation. Not even going all the way back to the time of the judges, they just saw this happen to the northern nation. At the time that Isaiah was warning Judah and prophesying their own captivity, what was happening to Israel? They were being taken captive by Assyria for really the same reasons. You think that may have made the warnings hit home for them, but apparently it didn't. So they had the opportunity to look at the patterns of history. But the other thing that they had was they had the warnings of the prophets. Isaiah, as we've seen, Jeremiah also warned them. Habakkuk, also prophesying around this time, talks about the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, um, the nation of Babylon, being raised up by God. The nation had plenty of opportunities to repent, to turn from their sin, and yet they didn't do it. And so what happens? 
Judah is taken into captivity by the, by the Babylonians, by the Chaldeans. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the exiles in Babylon during the captivity, right? So Ezekiel's prophecy comes while they're in captivity. Ezekiel had been taken away himself, and his prophecy um, is one of hope for the restoration of the coming kingdom. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel's, and in fact, he mentions Daniel at least three times in his writings. And so then that brings us to Daniel. Daniel was written from a different perspective than Ezekiel because Daniel had a different perspective. Ezekiel was one that had been taken into captivity and was living as a captive among the other captives of Judah, right? So he was in with the general population of of Israel, or Judah, um, as they'd been taken captive. Daniel, on the other hand, had been taken captive, but he was living as a noble. He was living as a prince. He was living in the king's own household. He had the unique position of being placed into a position of leadership in Babylon, not just as one of the captives, but he was in a position of leadership. And and we'll get to see how, how he gets there. Daniel was a godly man who was living in a pagan world. From that position alone, we should see that we can learn a lot from the experiences of Daniel. As we live in a time where we, the church, are a godly people living in a pagan and a godless world, there are many similarities in situations that we see around us. And I don't think any of us are kidding ourselves that there aren't horrible things going on in the world around us today. As we come to Daniel, we note that it is written during a time when God's chosen people are being punished. They are living in a time of judgment once again. So that's the setting for this book. And as we'll see, even during this time of judgment, even while they are being punished, God has not forsaken his people. God was still caring for his people, and he was allowing them to live in in relative peace. And not only live in peace, but he had sovereignly placed his own chosen man in a position of great authority within the nation that had conquered them. Even though God was judging them, he had not forsaken them, and he was still caring for the nation of Israel at this time. The prophet Habakkuk writing just before the captivity of Judah, writes about both the judgment of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians and the ultimate judgment by God of the Babylonians themselves. And in his prayer at the end of of his book, even though the thought of the Babylonians invading distresses him greatly, right? I mean, Habakkuk is like, he's very distressed by these things that are going to be taking place. He concludes at the end of his book, Yet I will exult, this is Habakkuk 3.18, Yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Even though he knew what was coming, he knew the enemy that was approaching and that God had raised them up for the purpose of judging the nation. Even though he knew all that, he was confident that God would take care of his own people and restore those who were, were faithful to him. I will exult in the Lord, he says. 
Daniel had a similar attitude, and we'll see that as we go throughout the book. Daniel will be put in situations where we think, how could he go through that? How could he have that attitude in light of what's going on? And we'll see, and we'll make note of the fact that there were many that were captive, taken captive with him that did not respond the same way that Daniel did. So Daniel had a similar attitude. Ezekiel had a similar attitude as well. They were both captives of the Babylonians, had been taken at the hands of those that Habakkuk had feared, yet they both remained faithful to God. And you ask yourself, how easy would it be to, to quit? How easy would it be to forsake God at that point? Everything that you had was gone. Everything that, that, that was important to you. You were taken from your home, taken from your family, taken away to a foreign land to live as one of them. How easy would it be to think, God has forsaken me. Maybe I should forsake God. Well, Daniel doesn't do that. No matter what happens to him, Daniel will remain faithful to God. The authenticity of the book of Daniel. Is the book of Daniel genuine? Why would I ask that question? Because believe it or not, this has been a hotly contested subject for many years, dating all the way back to at least the 3rd century A.D. And one reason that the book of Daniel is debated as people say, well, no, that, that wasn't written when they say it was written, is because most liberal scholars hold that the book of Daniel could not have been written back in the 6th century B.C. They claim that it was actually written no earlier than the 2nd century B.C. by someone claiming to be writing it at an earlier time. Well, it's just, it's just prose. It's just, he's, just, he's just pretending to be someone that had written earlier in time. Well, why would they say that? Well, the simple reason is because the book of Daniel is too accurate in its prophecies. The book of Daniel couldn't possibly have been written back that far because it includes too many details of historical events that hadn't happened yet. Daniel talks about things in his prophecies that happened two, three hundred years later on. Yes, it does, and it's called prophecy. It's called the pre-written truth of history from the Almighty God. For, those, for these liberal scholars to acknowledge that Daniel was written in the 6th century would mean that they would have to acknowledge the prophetic words of God, and they're not willing to do that. So they claim the book to be a forgery, and they say that someone else wrote it later on. Well, if it's a forgery, then it's a great one because it had at least one person fooled who's never been fooled before. And I know we haven't gone to any verses yet, but turn over to Matthew chapter 24 with me today. I, 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 do, I will tell you that in future studies for a Bible study, we will be in more verses in the Bible in, you know, in the future. But today, like I said, we're just doing an introduction. But in Matthew chapter 24, we see someone um, who was fooled by this forgery, if in fact it was a forgery. Look down at verse 15, Matthew 24, where Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Oh, how embarrassing. Jesus just referenced a guy who we know to be fake news. The writing was a forgery. Apparently, Jesus didn't see Daniel as fake news. He thought it was pretty accurate, right? He, he actually talks about something that Daniel talks about because he, even from here, he goes on in the chapter to explain events that would come about at the same time that Daniel prophesied about. He uses Daniel's prophecy as a starting point to give forth more prophecy. Another reason that liberal theologians doubt Daniel's authenticity is because miracles that we see here just don't happen. We all know about the miracles in Daniel. They're some of the earliest Sunday school stories I'm sure that we were taught as kids. Anybody remember the little felt boards that they would put? Do we still use felt boards? I don't know, even know if those are still a thing. Okay, no felt boards anymore? All right. I remember the felt boards. You got to be the kid that would, that would volunteer to put things up on the board. I know I'm dating, I'm dating myself. But there's some of the earliest Sunday school stories that, we're, that we hear about when we're kids. Telling someone what their dream was. Living through a night in a den of hungry lions. Surviving a tour of a fiery furnace from the inside and coming out without even the smell of smoke on your clothes. I mean, let's face it, these things just don't happen, do they? Well, without the sovereign power of God being at work, no, they don't. Because that's the whole point. When God is at work, anything is possible. You see, the difference is that those that argue against the miracles in the Bible are unwilling to look past what their rational mind will tell them. They haven't seen it, they don't believe it. When they think this way, what is it that they're really doing? They're putting themselves in the driver's seat. In other words, the rational human experience trumps any belief in God. And we see the same thing today. We see the same thing with science today. We see the way that the world views creation versus evolution. If I don't see evidence of these things that are in the Bible, then I'm not going to believe it. That's what people say. They can't possibly put their faith in something that they can't control like the Almighty God. So instead, they put their faith in their own theories and their own postulations and their own ideas, which is something that they can control. It's something that to them is real because they can make it up and move it around and do whatever they want with it. That's what happens with the miracles that we see in Daniel. It must be made up because these things just don't really happen. They're just Sunday school stories that we tell little children. Well, God's sovereign actions are not stories. And if we discount the miracles of God as fictitious stories, then we have to discount almost the entire Scripture, entire Bible. I remember hearing someone say, and, and this is one of those things where I, I couldn't tell you who it was, but I remember hearing someone say that if you take out all the miracles in the Bible, you come away with something like 27 verses that you can consider to be valid. And I don't know what those 27 verses are, so don't ask me that. But, but the point is that if you take out the miracles in the Bible, you're not left with much in Scripture. And you know what's going on? With all of these claims against the validity of the book of Daniel... The book of Daniel is being attacked. It's an attacked book. Why? Why would somebody attack the book of Daniel? Because it's too important. 
Because it's too accurate. Because it actually reveals too much. Satan is going to attack the credibility of this book, and that's what's going on. Some people believe that the book of Daniel is the most important book in the Old Testament, maybe even in the whole Bible. Now, I would hesitate to elevate one book of the Bible over other books of the Bible. I don't want to be the one making the judgment on which book of the Bible is the most important. But it is an important book. And within the realm of prophecy, it is an essential book for our understanding of God's future plans. And we can't allow ourselves to be distracted by the nonsense of those that refuse to look past their own minds uh, to describe what's real, to say what's real and what's not real. Who refuse to look past their faith in a humanistic experience in order to acknowledge the way in which God is working on the, on the earth. We'll see as we go through the book that there were people even back in Daniel's day that had trouble with this. They refused to acknowledge God and they refused to give him the credit that was due him. And God himself had to remind them in no uncertain terms, had to remind them who was really in charge. And he does that um, in ways that are painfully obvious uh, to show who's in charge. If we believe the book of Daniel, then we must acknowledge not only the existence of God, but also the sovereign authority of God. Because we're left with really no other choice. And that's something that a world that denies the very existence of God will not tolerate. Right? We talked a little bit about that last week um, with uh, Virgil here, about how people, they know that God exists. Nobody is truly an atheist, but they just refuse to believe it. They've convinced themselves, they lie to themselves um, to convince themselves that, that God can't be real. They basically just don't acknowledge him as God. Well, Daniel must be attacked and discredited, and it is being attacked because that's Otherwise, they have to acknowledge things that, are, that they don't want to acknowledge. Let's look at the purpose of the book. As we go through Daniel, there are some things that we need to keep in mind, things that we need to recognize. Why was Daniel written? What does it show us? I've got a, a list of a few things that we need to be watching out for as we go through Daniel. And it's probably not a complete list. I'm sure there's other things that people could come up with as well. But these are some things that we will make note of as we go through um, the chapters. One of the first things that it shows us, and possibly the most obvious, is that there's an example to live by here as we go through this book. And really, we're going to see this in a couple of different areas. But first off, how can a godly man or woman live in a pagan world? We're going to see in this book men of God living away from their homes away from their families, away from any kind of God-centered worship. We're going to see them put in situations that would make most of us crumble under the pressure, and yet they're going to remain faithful to God. And, and not even, even saying remain faithful isn't even the best way to put it. They're going to go above and beyond in situations to make sure that they're remaining faithful to God. Any one of us, as we're, as we're sitting here in church, as we're sitting in Bible studies or our discipleship groups, as we're surrounded by our brothers and sisters in Christ, might think, well, I could do that. I could remain faithful to God in, 
in any situation that comes up. But if you put yourself in Daniel's shoes, as we go through these accounts and and we put ourselves in their shoes, in Daniel's shoes, in Hananiah, Mishael's, and Azariah's shoes, the three friends of Daniel that were also faithful to God, and ask yourself if you could honestly say that you would respond to their situation the same way that they did. Especially when you consider that these guys were teenagers when we first meet them in chapter 1. Some of us know this. Some of us have yet to find this out. But one of the biggest concerns that any parent has is that when we release our kids out into the world, that they remember all the things that we taught them, right? All the verses that they learned, all the Sunday school classes that we sent them to, all the times that we spent reading Scripture with them. And that, and that time is where, as we say, the rubber hits the road, right? When the kids go off to college, the kids leave the house in some way. It's where the rubber hits the road, right? Will they remain faithful to God in all that they do? Once all the things that we've taught them when they're out on their own, will they remain faithful to God? Away from the protection and the influence of their parents, right? As, as a parent, that's a concern that we have. Well, we'll see that these guys' parents had nothing to worry about with them because they do remain faithful to God. Another example that we can take from the book of Daniel, an example that we can live by, is in recognizing the power of the one who is at work in us. The Bible is clear that God has gifted each and every believer with gifts of the Holy Spirit. We see this in books like uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, all have listings of, of spiritual gifts, and that each one, a spiritual gift has been given. And these gifts are used, are, are, meant, are given to us so that we can serve and that we can minister within the body of Christ. We use them for the benefit of the body. That is God's work in us. That is God using us as his instruments to accomplish his purpose within the church. And we'll see Daniel become a wise man. We'll see Daniel become powerful, a man who is able to do things that no one else in the entire Babylonian empire can do. And yet, he will recognize that God is the one who is really at work in him. Turn over to Daniel chapter 2. This will actually be the first verse we read in the book of Daniel this morning. But turn over with me to Daniel chapter 2. And we're probably familiar with this account. Um, if we're not, we, we will be shortly. Um, but here, in, this, in, in chapter 2, Daniel has come into the presence of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to make known to him his own dream. And this will be a spoiler for when we get to chapter 2, but it'll be a while. So, um, But Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in the middle of the night. He's very frightened. He's, he doesn't know what to do because he's had a dream that he can't even remember the dream, and he wants somebody to come in to not only tell him what the dream meant, but tell him what the dream was. Why was I so upset? Well, as you can imagine, that would be a tall task, right? The king wants to know what his dream was. How am I supposed to tell him that? Well, down in verse 26, 
Daniel has come in, um, and Daniel's going to reveal this, this dream to him. In verse 26, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now again, like I just said, from a human standpoint, here's the perfect opportunity for Daniel to elevate himself, right? If Daniel knows what to tell him. To make himself seem to be the wisest man in all of Babylon, right? There, there are people out there that would see this as an opportunistic experience, right? We would say that he's being thrown a slow pitch right across home plate here, and all he'd have to do at this point to hit it out of the park is say, well, yes, yes, I am the man that can do that. But that's not what Daniel says. Look at verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. In other words, king, nobody on earth can do what you're asking to be done. I can't do it. Nobody else can do this either. And that's what he tells the king. Nobody can do this. However, he goes on in verse 28. He says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Daniel wasn't a wise man on his own. He had no great skill at interpreting dreams, but he did have something else. He had the privilege of being an instrument of God so that God could interpret the dreams of the king and use Daniel in the process in order to do that. Daniel knew that. Daniel knew that he wasn't interpreting this dream on his own. It was God who was interpreting the dream for him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God is going to give us the ability to interpret dreams. But I'm saying that as he gives us gifts today, gifts of the Spirit that we use in service to him in the church that we should, like Daniel did, recognize that we have these abilities because of the gifts that he has given to us. We serve God using the gifts and abilities which he has blessed us with. It's not on our own. It's because of what God has blessed us with. Another thing that we need to realize, and we've already talked about this some, so I'll just mention it again, is that throughout the Jewish captivity, God does not abandon his people. God is taking care of the nation of Israel. He has not abandoned them. And really the most obvious indication of this is the fact that he put his own man in a position of authority in the nation when they were taken captive. And not just in one nation. He doesn't just put him in authority of one nation, but in two, because as we'll see, there will be a change in power along the way. A new administration will take over, and yet Daniel will be in a position of authority in both of those nations. So even though God is punishing his people, he has not forsaken them. Another thing that we'll see, another purpose for writing is to show the the short-sightedness of a decadent society. We see this first off simply by the situation itself. Judah has been punished by God for what? Their own decadence, their own idolatry. They're turning away from God to their own lusts. Even though Time and again, they have received fair warning from God to turn away from wickedness. They refuse to listen. But not only does the nation of Judah succumb to this, but we see it with the Gentile nations as well. 
As Daniel becomes more established in this society, we're going to see more and more detail about what goes on in the, in the society around him. And as they refuse to acknowledge God, as they refuse to, to recognize, as Daniel recognized, that God is sovereign over the entire earth, there will be consequences. Well, why is this relevant to us? Because we live in a society today that is becoming more and more decadent. I don't think that's lost on any of us. There are things going on today that were unheard of 50 years ago. I heard a sermon a while back that had been taught in the 70s. And it's, it's, it's funny to listen. I mean, not funny, but it's interesting to listen to some of these old sermons from the 70s because they start to use examples And one of the examples they used was talking about the decadence around them at that day. And so they talked about how disco was was a sign of decadence of the day. And you can imagine it almost makes, makes us laugh, right? Because if you compare disco with some of the things that are going on around us today that are being done openly, proudly, you know, sin just running rampant, Disco was tame by comparison. We probably wouldn't even point to disco as a sign of decadence. But we live in a decadent society. We do. And it's only going to get worse. We're on the downswing. And we know from Scripture, in fact, we know from from Daniel, that that there is going to come a day when the actions of the world are going to be dealt with. They will be judged. God is going to judge the nations of the earth someday. They may think that they can get away with murder today, but tomorrow at some point down the road, it will all come crashing down around them. And we'll see that the book of Daniel has a a lot to say about the Gentile nations. It doesn't just pertain to Israel, to the Jews. In fact, we'll talk about what's called the time of the Gentiles, which starts with the Babylonian captivity and will not end until the coming of Christ when the land of Israel will once again be restored to the nation. And really, that all culminates with our last point, but probably our most important one, as we're going to see in this book that God is sovereign over all the earth. If you don't get anything else out of the book of Daniel, make sure you get this one. Because this is probably the main point of the entire book. God is in charge. God determines who is in power and who is not. God determines when nations rise and when they fall. God determines when judgments begin and when they end. God determines when his chosen people are on top of the world and when they are being trampled by it. There is nothing that God is not in control of. And we need to remember that. That's something that we need to remind ourselves of. That's one of those truths that we think of. And when we read a book like Daniel, we see, oh yeah, I see where he says that. But when it comes to our daily lives, do we really live that out? Do we really live out the fact that, you know what, no matter what's happening to me today, no matter what's happening in the world around me today, happening to the nation, to the government, to whatever's going on, do I fully realize that God is the one who's in control? There are times when it seems that the ungodly are, are right and the godly are fools because the ungodly get it all. They get wealth, they get fame, they get power, they get influence. 
while the godly are asking, what about us? What, is, what does God have in store for us? Well, those questions are answered in studying a book like Daniel and Revelation and, and any other book that reveals what God has in store for those who are faithful to him. God is sovereign. He does have a plan, and we need to always keep that in mind. Um, for the last thing that we'll turn to today, turn over to Daniel chapter 4. We'll end our introduction by looking at this today. Many people look at verses like Daniel 4.17 to see the theme of the book, and it's, it's really hard to dispute. And I wouldn't even try to dispute it. I would say this is the theme of the book. Daniel 4.17 says, The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This verse here does an excellent job of summing up the entire point of the book of Daniel, revealing the wonderful sovereignty of God. God is the ruler over the realm of mankind. God is the one who sets over it the lowliest of men. Anyone that's in charge is in charge because of God. And we'll see who is being directly referred to when we get to chapter 4. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, I couldn't... I couldn't uh, I couldn't wait. But Daniel is a wonderful book. It's a book that I get excited about when I study it, and I hope that, as, that you will too as we spend some time together in it at various points throughout the, the coming months. We're going to see wonderful examples of godly character. We're going to see God's sovereign plan for the world, the future, not just from Daniel's point of view, but a good portion of it is, is yet still future to us as well, and we'll... We'll talk about those when we get to them. And in light of what God has in store for us in the future, in light of where he is leading the nation of Israel, and we'll also get a picture of what that will mean for us in the church as well. And in light of those things, it's my hope that we'll all be able to take the knowledge of what we learn in this book together and be able to live lives glorifying to God here and now. Living today, following godly examples, knowing what the future holds for us. So, okay, that's all I had for this morning. Um, why don't I pray, and then if anybody's got any questions, we can talk. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you again this morning, and Lord, we just thank you for another opportunity to be in your word, and, and Lord, I thank you for um, an opportunity that we can study Daniel together. Um, pray that you would be with us um, in the coming weeks as we look at the first chapter, as we uh, start to get into this book. And I just pray, Lord, that um, you would be glorified and honored. We thank you, Lord, for the examples that we have of godly men. We thank you for the, the truth that you've revealed in your word, Lord, that telling us the things that are coming and, and what we can expect as your children. And I just pray, Lord, that, that we would have an interest in these things, that we would not just be reading them as things that will happen someday, and, and we don't need to worry about that, but, but just knowing how we can live today in light of the truth that you've revealed to us. I thank you, Lord, uh, for this time, and I just uh, pray that you would bless um, the rest of our time here this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.